You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your host, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, Kat Kalin, and special guest host, Mike Glover. 911, what is the nature of your emergency? There's somebody with a gun in the main entrance to the mall, and I don't... Active shooter situations are unpredictable and evolve quickly. Are you prepared? So today, Mike Glover and I are going to be talking about an active shooter situation, and Mike has obviously a lot of experience in this. Mike, you know, teaching at Fieldcraft, this is one of those things I'm sure you have many classes on. As a matter of fact, I think you just taught one here just about a week ago. Yeah, I just taught a active shooter class in Modesto, uh, California, at one of our training facilities called Spec Group, and uh, we had about a dozen or so uh, people show up for that. It, it went really well. We had we had a uh, good class where we start with uh, concepts and and kind of philosophy, and then go into immediately going into hands-on training. All right, so we're going to put ourselves, I think, today kind of in an active shooter situation. And, of course, you know, with all the trouble that's going around the world, to think that it's not going to happen more frequently or it could potentially happen in your own backyard is a little naive here in America. So, obviously, one of the things you want to do is understand what it is you know, that you're supposed to do, whether you're in a work environment, a mall situation, you know, any type of situation that you might be in where there could be an active shooter that you you end up uh, getting engaged with right now let's say i'm out having coffee or something in starbucks or i'm near a shopping center or something of that nature and all of a sudden shots are fired and i know that they're close by um well the fir- i know the first thing that we we do or and that i teach in active shooter, uh, shooter situations is to not necessarily follow the protocols that i think the government has put out where they typically teach you to run uh, hide and fight. Yeah. Well, so, so the first thing is we don't want to we don't want to just get up and start moving without understanding the uh, totality of the situation or as much information as we can observe. And that's the first part of the acronym that I use is called OFF, um, and it's observe. It's you want to you want to have an understanding of your environment and an understanding of what's taking place, because a lot of times, you know, these active shooter situations, the the worst of them typically have more than one person if they're a terrorist type uh, man-made catastrophe and you could be running into a baited ambush you could be fleeing uh, unnecessarily uh, and then putting yourself in more danger so the first thing we want to do is observe and determine where the threat is coming from so in that situation where you know somebody starts firing a weapon outside of the fact that they if they're killing people or not they've already determined that they're using deadly force or at least demonstrating deadly force. And the worst thing you could do is flee out the back door and run into their partner or flee and run out the front door and run into them. So observation is, is key. So are you also in in the observation phase? Are you kind of looking as well for where people might be running from so that you might even be able to identify the direction from which the shooter is at, or is it just mass chaos? And so you may not even be able to identify that as part of the observe. Yeah, it, it depends on the time allocated. So, you, you know, I always talk about the danger and the imminent threat that danger poses to you is based off of distance and time. So if there's a guy, you know, who's 25 meters from you um, with a knife, then, you know, he, he might not be a imminent threat compared to somebody who's standing at 25 meters with an AR-15 pointed at you. Um, so as you're observing and, and, and seeing different things, one thing, uh, like you said, is seeing the, the patterns of life and patterns of traffic where people are fleeing. And we talk about uh, kind of like the psychology and survival type scenarios and what people do. And it's proven in statistics that people who don't have training or don't have experience in a stressful survival type scenario, they do different things. One of those things is they flee. Uh, One of those things is they sit or stand in shock and they freeze. And another one of those things is they potentially, depending on their level of training, could actually fight or deter the threat. So yeah, good, good rule of thumb is number one, the immediate action drill is not pulling out your cell phone um, trying to get it on social media, which right. is which too is many people. Huge, yeah. God. Oh, oh yeah. 
it's almost like every i mean you could youtube it you could google it right every single type scenario that involves media you'll see 10 other people standing around that same person who's holding a phone watching somebody in a gunfight it's just crazy and, people want their 15 minutes of fame doing that yeah yeah and it's 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 just the you know it's a millennial thing but it's it's people being immersed in technology and not really immersed in reality so yeah it's a definitely a bad habit so what we want to do the i mean the the biggest thing um is we have to identify whether the threat is is a life-threatening threat or is it firecrackers or is it fireworks or is it somebody a construction worker so i always tell people to identify friend from foe which is you know a military type type uh, thing with target discrimination but we have to identify if it's a friend or foe and if we identify that it's imminent threat or immediate threat then we start hastily planning while our body is moving so we don't waste time and lull and sit there and contemplate we take ourselves out of that situation and get to a safe site whether it's you know it could be the back door of that building it could be the lockable door on that building it just depends on the really the the level of threat but we immediately start moving as an immediate action and then as we're maneuvering we're thinking about other considerations like communications, like potentially going to a firearm and, and thinking about the action that you'll have to take, a hasty plan of evasion and what routes we need to take. Um, so it's a it's very complex and, you know, you can't it's like choose your own adventure. You know, you have to determine things based on as they're happening. But the key takeaway is inaction is not a course of action. Hope is not a course of action. Sitting there and lolling is the worst thing you could do. So the first step. Observe. Take an evaluation, a quick, hasty evaluation of what's going on so that you can identify whether or not it is, like you said, an imminent threat or friend or foe. And at that next stage, then you start moving to a location where you can seek some kind of safety. Yeah. The, the second part of that is, you know, the second and third part of the acronym I use, which is OFF, is fight and flee or flee and fight. And I say that's they're, they're synonymous in that you could use either one, but really it depends on your level of training. For example, someone like myself who's trained in active shooter, who's, who's been in crisis scenarios involving direct action, I'm confident in my abilities to defend human life, defend civilians. And the priority of work uh, might not be getting myself out of the danger area. It could be potentially you know, if, I, if I'm with my family, that could be the priority. But for somebody like myself who's who's kind of been in those scenarios before, knowing that there are innocent civilians who potentially are going to get killed, I'm going to run to the fight and then flee as an afterthought. Like, I want, I'm going to address the situation. I always carry concealed. I'm always kind of in this mindset prepared for these type things. But somebody who's not trained, uh, they might want to flee and think of fighting as the afterthought because the priority is, hey, maybe they don't carry concealed. Um, maybe they, they don't have that type of mindset or training. Then they need to flee for a start movement and then always have in the back of their mind the mindset to be prepared to fight uh, whenever it's needed. I mean, let's face it. Most of the people that are going to be the active shooter, the person that's actually causing the imminent danger has already – in their own mind, come up with the scenarios of what they want to do. They want to take life. They want to take probably as much life as they can, especially if they've chosen an open situation with a lot of people. That's their goal. Their their goal is to, to identify targets, take out the targets. And not only that, but they have probably already identified that it could be their lives. It's going to be a danger as well. And they're willing to take that risk. Yeah, most statistics will show you. I mean, there's good there's good FBI statistics on active shooter type situations, and mo most active shooter scenarios in America last around 12 minutes. Typically, it's at your workplace. Over 50 percent of the time, the active shooter is killed by the police or killed by them themselves. And like you said, they've already made the determination in an active shooter situation that more than likely they're committing their life, whether it's to the ideology and cause or to killing somebody else and then their life as an afterthought. And what I do is, in, you know, in my training, I compare 
this same mindset to the same mindset that Al-Qaeda had when we were fighting them in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and everywhere else in the world, which is a which is an ideology and, you know, extreme Islamists that their life, their martyrdom is the number one priority and they've committed to that. So there is no negotiation with these type of people because they've already committed to taking lives and giving their own life. So the the way in which we train, the way in which we think about the mindset to apply to these people is not a mindset of, hey, put put your gun down or, you know, hey, this is the police. Stop. Stop what you're doing. They've already committed, you know, typically with gunshots and with killing somebody uh, uh, that that imminent and deadly force. So I, I tell people that's a, it's a kill switch, right? When you have a when somebody has decided that they're going to end people's lives, they've kind of already decided for themselves that they're going to be open to the same uh, confrontation by people like us who are trained. And there's a subtle flaw in the way we train active shooter. And that's that we look at these people and we address it like it's a policing type issue. When I look at it is like an Al Qaeda type issue where there is no turning back. Once you commit to taking people's lives, whether it's with a vehicle, whether it's with a gun, the only way to stop that forward movement is by ending their lives. And it's it's tough to say, it's tough to train, it's tough to hear, but that's the reality of it. Yeah, totally makes sense. And I mean, we also have to think about that every second probably that goes by, the individual may have been able to squeeze the trigger once, twice, depending upon how quick they can squeeze. So we're talking about in a matter of a few seconds, they, they can get several rounds off. So the more times that you think about it or trying to halt the individual or, you know, that's, I agree, that just wouldn't be a good situation for sure. But not everybody goes through this type of training and goes through it, especially as a civilian, on an ongoing basis. But it's at least something that they should be thinking about more frequently given the times, correct? Yeah, you know, it's it's crazy because, you know, when we think about our uh, military training and the things that required little to no thought, we were trained in this process called immediate action training where whereby we use repetition to develop this muscle memory to have an immediate reaction that's not consciously thought about in order to shorten the timeline to assist us in saving our lives. The drill could be a reactive contact. Somebody shoots at us, we get down, we duck our heads, duck and cover. And that's something that's trained. In civilian life, you know, on, a, on an everyday, during in a, you know, your everyday patterns of life and your, on an everyday basis in your routine, you don't experience these elements that we would experience when we're on combat operations or operations period. So it's tough because it's tough to instill muscle memory into a civilian who point zero 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 one percent of their life might be immersed in this maybe and so now we have to train something that they literally have to take into their lives uh, their normal lives and, and train for so what i like to do is i like to do this training and not burden people with a lot of things that are going to change in the way in which they live their lives but instead change their mindset so no matter what situation they're in if it's stressful they can adapt hastily plan and then without a lot of effort consciously react to a, a scenario like an active shooter situation you know they, they, you don't have to be trained in in an immediate action drill if an active shooter walks into a cafe and you know drawing your pistol in 0.5 seconds and you know, going after the target right. in, in a couple seconds. But but if you have the process training your brain and what to do specifically with your body, what to do specifically with your mind, then you might apply that process to a vehicle accident, a, a house fire, any stressful incident in your life. Well, when you think about stress, too, I mean, I wouldn't think that very many people actually put themselves in very stressful situations. And this is a, what we're talking about here is a very high stress situation that, again, when you start hearing gunshots or you start hearing pops and sounds that sound like a weapon, 
the the first instinct of probably I would think most people in a civilian environment is stop, look, think what's going on, and taking those precious moments to try to assess what's happening. What is this noise I'm hearing? But unfortunately, it may be it might be too long of time that they're actually taking to assess the whole situation. So when you were talking about observe, just kind of going back a little bit, you're not talking about taking minutes. You're talking about quickly assessing and moving out swiftly, correct? Yeah. And that, and that's the key. The key is, you know, I I teach people to start movement upon even sensing a threat. You know, it, let's say, I mean, let's say it's you're at Starbucks and you're sitting in the, in the cafe and you hear loud pops that, that you think potentially could be gunshots, but you might think, oh, it's probably construction and, and your, your mind is doing what it does. It's trying to justify everything it hears and say, oh, that's probably not a big deal. It's probably, it's probably something routine. Well, if you have that sense, that, that, that feeling, that sixth sense that something is not right, that you have to trust those instincts and start or initiate movement. And that initiation of movement could be, hey, you know, check please, or hey, we, we just need to get out of here and then start movement towards the exit. So that way, if it starts to escalate, you're already steps ahead. And the whole curiosity kills a cat, that's what kills most people in these situations is this inquisitive nature or, you know, hey, I want to get this on YouTube. I want to get this on Facebook and I want to observe and see what's going on because I'm curious. That a lot of times get pe- gets people killed. Yeah, I can totally see that. So I'll tell you a real-life situation. I lived in a neighborhood that was kind of you know changing. There started to be a little bit more crime that was occurring right before we sold this house. And, and I'm laying there in the bed, and I heard gunshots in a car. And, of course, as soon as I heard the gunshots, I roll out of the bed onto the floor. My wife, however, and my daughter jump out of the bed, run downstairs to look out the dining room window to see where the noise is coming from and what it is. Totally different training and instincts that happened there. I'm on the ground crawling, kind of doing a low crawl. They thought I was stupid, you know, and laughing at the whole bit. And I'm like, no, what you just did was put yourself in danger. By going especially to a window, that's not going to protect you at all. Somebody's going to see that, you know, see you there. And if there are bullets flying, again, that's how most people get killed. You know, it's it's a that's a good point you bring up, and I talk about John Leach's survival psychology statistics. He's a he's a survival psychologist, but he he points out that you know when people don't have training, especially children, they they typically become the victims of these survival type stressful type situations where um, they relatively under under trained circumstances would have survived. So if you take like a child or somebody who's not trained in an active shooter situation, they, they're going to do things that they typically would do in any type of stressful situation. Right. You know, so if it's a, you know, if it's a, a child and they've experienced something stressful and they start crying and they freeze, they don't move, they're going to do that. So it's imperative that not only the people who seek training, like who go to my courses, but those people become the trainers, you know, that whole train the trainer mindset where they teach these young kids, they teach these people without any training to respond according to uh, uh, the situation. And so that way they understand, hey, I I have to do something specific here. And it's not, you know, look out the window or, hey, this is this is an active shooter situation. Dad said during this type of situation, I need to immediately walk away or run away and get on the phone and call 911. So all these responses, you know, people have different kind of responses depending on their life experiences, but something as specific as an active shooter has to be trained and it has to be trained routinely for us to respond appropriately. Most of the organizations nowadays or organizations are trying to do active shooter type of training. And as you mentioned, they're using the Homeland Security type of format in order to get that type of training. And not necessarily that that's bad, but it is good that more and more Americans are starting to get accustomed to that, realizing what areas they should go to that are secure. I know that we used to do things that are, you know, the building's on fire. We'd do a type of scenario where we'd go outside, you find your spot. If you're in this section of the building, these are the doors you go out of. 
But like you mentioned, active shooter situations are happening more and more with a disgruntled employee or a former employee or even someone who was not didn't feel they got the service there or they, they felt hurt or something by what happened. Could have been even in the past, several months prior. These things happen all the time. And in these situations, if you haven't gone through that type of training, then you're going to be totally unprepared, not sure where to go. And the first thing you do is just, you know, at, at that situation, either you're you're just running perhaps right into the individual or you're you're hiding underneath your desk. You're not thinking clearly because you've never been put in that type of stressful situation. Yeah, like you said, I mean, statistically, since 2003, the FBI's keeping been keeping some pretty good statistics on active shooters. From 2003 to 2013, that 10-year period, active shooter scenarios in America have done nothing but increased. I mean, they've doubled in that in that period. So, like you said, it's it's a more prevalent thing, but also with the threat of ISIS and 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 Muslim extremists in our homeland. Look, that's that's their go-to tactic and technique. I mean, that's that's their go-to is inflicting mass casualties. And I, I hate. You know, I don't I don't necessarily like calling it active shooter because it almost seems like it's a marketing or branding scheme because it's generated a lot of uh, attention um, and, and a lot of money for different uh, industries, including government. I, I like to I like to look at is is uh, really you're you're countering any kind of threat because an active shooter can easily turn into, you know, what happened overseas where you, you, you know, an active shooter is in a vehicle and he's he's causing mass mass casualties with a vehicle right um, or an airplane it, or it any, becomes a any, weapon yeah any type of weapon a car yeah. is a weapon and that's yeah, been shown now yeah yeah so it doesn't have to be necessarily an uh, a, a shooter specifically but it it, it could be a I call it man-made catastrophe you know basically a catastrophe that's caused by a human being so the way in which you deal with if, for example, the you know the thing that happened in, in France with the vehicle, I mean, this guy started mowing over people, right? And nobody understood, really, could grasp what what was happening. But every single person you see in every video clip is surrounded by twenty plus people of other people with uh, cameras. I mean, there's guys recording bodies. There's guys recording the the active shooter slash driver mowing over people. And instead of people fleeing that area sensing the danger there's you know at least 50 percent of them are on target basically looking and observing to see what's happening and that inquisitive nature i mean what if that what if that truck was a v-bid a vehicle born ied i mean can you imagine the amount of casualties that that, yeah. that thing would have inflicted by by baiting everybody in to get their cell phone and see what they're saying obviously like a fire situation You've got to have a plan and an escape route in mind well beforehand. And it should be something that you've kind of carefully thought about. If a if the noise is coming from this direction, I go the, you know this way. This is my flea route. If I go, if I hear it from this direction, then I've chosen plan B and this is now my flea route. I would think you'd need to have that type of thing in mind. What are some of the other things you need to think about? Yeah, so what you described is a deliberate plan of evasion depending on the scenario. And time allocates all that stuff. So if we're talking about our home, right, and an active shooter, you know, potentially is in your neighborhood or kicks in your front door, you would understand and, you know, you could deliberately rehearse and plan methods of escape and exit out of your home. But if you're mobile and you're moving and you go to, you know, Starbucks or something outside of your uh, your pattern of everyday routine – then you have to just basically apply good common sense. So the good co the common sense is if if you experience something that's dangerous, and we kind of like digress this a little bit outside of active shooter, but let's say it's anything dangerous, you want to create as much distance and put in as many obstacles between you and the threat as possible. So cars, we, uh, buildings, you know. Yep, yep, and it's and, and you know we we look at it during you know breaking contact drills. If we break contact, we put terrain features um, and we put, you know, man-made and natural obstacles in between us. Well, that's that's for a few reasons. Number one, if it's a shooter and he's actually shooting, he can't see you because you're concealed and he can't shoot you because you're providing your own cover and he can't shoot through the cover. So cover and concealment are, are the key components. But 
to not stop fleeing, not stop moving if you could move. People, a lot of the times, think behind a closed door inside of the office building where an active shooter is at or under the desk is a alternative and is a safe place because they have designated their safe place. An interesting observation this training class on Saturday was I had half the class pretend like they were bad guys and they went and hid inside of our little office space that we use for active shooter scenarios. And they were in nooks and crannies behind uh, under boxes, under desk, uh, behind chairs. And it's funny because when you're the bad guy looking out, you're like a little kid. It's like the hide and seek game. They're hiding in these little spots that they don't want to be discovered. Right. Well, the, the people who are looking for these people, the good guys in this case, could reasonably detect where they were because they're thinking through the mind of where they would hide. And they're, they're looking under desks. They're looking behind chairs. So hiding is not, um, is not safety. So when you look at an active shooter situation in a building, breaking contact from that building, from that structure, um, and then maneuvering beyond that building and putting many obstacles in as much distance and time as you can is the key to survival. And that, and that process never stops. I mean, you continue to move and continue to break contact as you go. Well, isn't the shooter automatically going to know that most people are going to go to the hide mode as, as opposed to the flee mode, as you just described? So as an active shooter, I'm going to know to look for, as I'm making movement, because they're just not going to stand still as well, that people are going to be under desks, enclosed rooms, those types of things, because that's what most people are trained to do. Yeah, you know, John Leach talks about how 10% of the population, no matter what the scenario, based on his case studies of survival type situations, that 10% are destined to die because they're going to do some ridiculous things. They're going to run into gunfire uh, inadvertently. 80% of the population, about 50% of that 80%, half of them are going to do something irregular that's going to cause them to potentially be killed. So that's what we have to, to look at here is, the majority of the population is going to do some some things that are going to put themselves in a more dangerous scenario. But you, as somebody who's trained, have to remember that that lack of understanding, that lack of training in those people is going to potentially impede your ability to survive in these scenarios. Right. So because the, the commotion, under- you're talking about the, com- the, the commotion that's kind of going on, the stress that they're yeah. not used to, those types of things. Could- yep, the stampeding, the, the, the stampeding, the sure. stress, the screaming. Let's say you're hiding in a room away from the active shooter and they're screaming because that's that's their stress response. Well, they're obviously putting you in more dangerous or precarious situation. So breaking contact from those people or, you know, I teach people in this course also to have if you want to save people's lives, if you are that that black sheep, if you are that sheepdog that's going to protect the population, then you have to start giving clear and concise instruction and not guidance, you know, not guiding them along the way, but specific pointed instruction on exactly what to do. Like you're talking to a private in the infantry, right? You know, Hey, Hey, look at me. I want you to do X, Y, Z. Do you understand what I'm telling you? Yes. Move out, execute. Because if you give them any kind of passive or misunderstanding or miscommunication of what's happening and they try to debate it with you or they don't get the clear picture, Again, they're going to impede their ability to survive, and they're going to potentially impede your ability to survive. If you're trained or you're an individual that's taken the time to kind of think about those situations, then then you should be the one that, that takes charge in that situation if you're not under the same type of stress. Yeah, you have to, you have to like when in charge, be in charge. You have to take charge and start assuming a responsibility immediately off the bat. And... You know, that I think the takeaway, you know, I AER, I do after action reviews every time I do training. And there's always um, something that it can evolve in my next period of training. So I tell people, you know, you'll never train with Phil Craft and have the same course twice because I don't believe in writing out a POI and sticking to the POI. If the class is ahead of the curve and we're adapting, we're evolving, then I'll change the POI. If we have good feedback from things that are happening from the news, from real life scenarios, from input from the class, then we're changing it next go around. Well, in real and, life situations are not going to be that way anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Each it, one's going to play itself out differently. Yeah. So in, in most cases, a lot of people are stuck in this rut 
of, hey, this is how we train. And, and you know, there's there's reasons behind it because of continuity or, or whatever, sure. whatever it is. But uh, the point is when when we were doing training and people were put in leadership positions to be able to force multiply and increase their chances of survival, that was the most difficult task for most civilians. You know, for, for me and you who have been leaders in the military, small unit leaders in the military, it's easy for us to start command and controlling. Well, you put somebody who lives in an office space who's a subordinate of a manager, you know, and they're and they're at the bottom of the, the totem pole. And an introvert. And yeah, and they don't do – yeah, and they're an introvert and they don't do a lot of command and control, but they take these courses on the weekend. Right. They might have to step up to the to the plate and actually command and control in order for the, the mass to survive. I mean think about it, if you're barricaded – I talk about the Virginia Tech uh, scenario. And I hate calling scenarios because they're real life, but you know the tragedy that happened in Virginia Tech, where the student, uh, one of the students went went uh, crazy and he, he started killing people with his with a pistol, and he he killed thirty something kids in Virginia Tech, and when he went to the one of the buildings, he locked the chains to the main entrance of the building so nobody could get out, and he went classroom to classroom killing people, and they basically you know hid under their desk and he just went you know ninety percent of the casualties that were inflicted were gunshot wounds to the head. So he went, you know, student by student. Well, one of the classes that that actually had no casualties, out of all of them, only one did this, was the teacher started commanding and controlling the classroom. He had his students barricade the door. He tasked, organized quickly these kids and what they had to do, and they held steadfast on the door and prevented him from entering. While other classrooms, you know, students had no guidance and they were trying to do it themselves. They were playing hide and go seek. Yeah. I mean, and it's, yeah, it's one, a natural. It one or two kids. Yeah. And it's a natural instinct. I, I can totally see what you were talking about earlier, you know, and, and it being a natural instinct that you, you go and hide. And yeah, not that there's something wrong with that, because it, in the case of the individuals that barricaded themselves in the room, they did the exact same thing. But they were trying to put as many barriers by desk or chairs or whatever in between them and the active shooter as well. And, you know, they had no choice. And it's it's horrible to, to think about because, you know, you never want to be a victim in any scenario. But you look at these kids who go to school. They're grown adults. They could serve in the military. They're, they choose to go to school. And the academic institution is responsible really for these kids' lives. Well, they don't have security. You're not allowed to have guns on these campuses. So there's no last standing protection for these kids in these kind of situations. And then you look at, you know, the police response times average in America are 10 to 12 minutes. So 10 to 12 minutes. That's an eternity. And the active shooter is done shooting uh, in 10 to 12 minutes. It's already too late. So these kids were their own last response. These teachers who some of them put themselves in harm's way were their last defense in this situation. In one minute, an individual who is qualified or has shot a firearm can probably squeeze off many rounds in a one-minute situation. You put 12 minutes on top of that, that's a lot of damage. Oh, yeah, it's all done and over with. By the time the police show up, you know, the active shooter has already killed, you know, you know, on average, at least one to two people. And then on a grand scale, he's killed dozens. So in the in this case here, we need to try to find a location or flee as we can to try to put as many things in between us and the active shooter, and of course try to do it in a concealed manner in which we're not drawing attention to ourselves. But let's talk as well about the fight side of it. Let's say that the active shooter gets close enough into your space in which you have no choice, or you know the another thing that I saw was a, a lot of training where. Individuals were taught that if, let's say it's a bank environment, you have individuals that come in and there's one active shooter that's in that, and you've got 45 people that's laying on the ground. You know, what they were trying to talk about is this is 45 to 1. Why do we always make it 1 to 45? It's 45 to 1. One weapon. It's one individual. You know, and so the numbers will at least add up that you should be able to take this person down. It's unfortunate. I, th I think it's just a part of what's happening to our culture and a lot of places where this passive and it seems like it's passive aggressive is an afterthought when it when it comes to addressing violence. And, you know, these guys and gals who train with me, they're kind of, you know, they're their harder core 
sheepdogs of our society who who want to train they want to learn to protect themselves but i always tell them that their you know their ultimate responsibility is to their family and to the people that they surround themselves with you know i i don't know what what it is about our society where you know you could have a car accident and you know i've experienced this before where you know guys laying on the ground and a hundred people drive by them and just let them lay there you know dying and nobody lends a hand and nobody helps each other out uh, whether it's lawsuits whether it's you know just people don't want to get involved or whatever it is it's it's pretty sad so when i teach fight i teach that hey you're fighting for yourself and your family primarily if you have to flee and get away from that situation you get away from it but if you have the skill sets to combat the, the threats that we face today then deal with it combat that threat fight it and survive and and allow these people to survive um, and that's that's a whole process that we teach and it's tough for a lot of people to switch that mindset which is like the warrior mindset but it's necessary especially in today's society so what's some of the things that you can do as fight let's say you don't have a handheld weapon on you or something there are other ways that you can fight back in terms of create creating improvised weapons yeah so we taught the fighting based on the the level of threat and we address the close proximity threat versus far away threat if you don't have a firearm if you don't have a knife if you don't have anything to use you have to improvise with what you have and in in my course we do a lot of um, disarming of firearms and combating somebody with a firearm and how you address that but the thing people have to remember is you have at your access and your disposal a whole slew of weapons that you could see on a daily basis you know whether it's a magazine that you roll up and that you use as a blunt object to inflict damage or it's the chair that you're sitting your butt on right um you have you have to improvise and and not necessarily you know you want to impede movement and progress of somebody moving across an objective or a location to inflict harm and you could do that by barricading you do that by creating obstacles but you also want to be prepared always to be able to fight one thing I, I like to focus on is the threshold. You know, everybody who tries to inflict harm in a box or a a location has to go into this box, has to cross through a threshold. And that's really a point of weakness for a lot of intruders as well as the good guys. So when they walk through this this threshold, it's a chance to capitalize and take advantage of that. And I, I don't want to go too much into details because I don't like to teach the, the tactics and techniques right. and give anybody who's potentially a bad guy the advantage. But essentially take advantage of the threshold and countering the threat uh, with your hands, with your with the things that you have around you. I mean, let's face it. If you're going to start throwing things, the average person with a weapon or without is not going to do like the movies and point the weapon and start shooting right away because they see it within the air. They're going to get hit, they're going to duck, they're going to do those types of things, and that gives you those few seconds or a few moments that you might need to escape the situation and flee to the next, or to take hold of the active shooter if you feel so qualified. But I think a lot of people watch movies and watch what's done in Hollywood in these types of situations, and either they, they get a lot of courage, and they probably shouldn't have had that much because they're not qualified or trained, or but I think, too, though, there's something to be said about individuals who are willing to risk their own lives or willing to put their own selves in danger to be able to help others in these situations. And we've heard about that many times where individuals have taken upon themselves to, to take out the active shooter or take out the individual threat. Yeah. And that's, you know, typically it tends to be guys who, who do train in this type of stuff and, you know, who seek training or they tend to be guys and gals from the military. Um, or somebody tied to law enforcement and elsewhere. But I think it's a civil responsibility outside of that. You know, you don't have to be, I mean, I got guys who work for IBM. I got guys who work for Apple. I got guys, you know, who are, who are just blue collar and white collar guys who just go about their business and they're not looking for a fight, but they want to be prepared. And that's the key is, you know, we all have like a civil responsibility to combat these types of threats in our society. And you know what? The alternative is, yeah, we don't. Maybe you don't do that. Maybe you decide that you're not going to be one of those that counter that threat. Well, you're just you're you're honestly the time is ticking, and you're you're just waiting to be the next victim. And and that's fine as well. But kudos to those who step up to the plate and want to seek this 
what I look at as better self-improvement. I think another thing, too, we got to be very cognizant of is that you're going to have officers that will be arriving to the situation, and some might arrive a lot sooner than the 10 or 12 minutes that we described earlier. So in those situations, you got to make sure that you're not seen as a threat as well in any way, shape, or form. When they're arriving on the situation, they're trying to quickly assess it. They, they're also trying to protect the individuals there that are not the active shooters. So you've got to do everything you can to make sure that you're making yourself aware to the those officers, those law enforcement officers that are trying to do their job, that you're not the threat. Yeah, I talk I talk about that a lot in my courses, and that and, you know I tell people that for me, my biggest threat is not the actual threat. I mean, most of these people are are really just uh, amateurs, and you know, you take somebody who's an amateur, you know, in a gunfight against somebody who's trained in special operations, it's not really going to be a, a fair match. So. I never considered that a big threat. The police, the first responders on the scene are potentially the biggest threat. So my whole thing is, hey, you know, I want to be prepared for what to do when those people show up. So if, if I'm waiting on them, there is some protocol and there are some things that you could do to ensure your survivability when you're waiting for these first responders to show up. Number one is if you're in an imminent, immediate, actionable type situation where you've taken or used deadly force, you have to remember that after you've assessed that there's no more threats, after you've dealt with whether it's killing, detaining, whatever it may be with stopping that threat, you have to think deliberately and start assessing what you have to do to prepare for the arrival of first responders. Whether that's putting away your gun or putting it down, alerting the police. So basically, yeah. so basically, you want to remain calm, but you also have to realize that to a first responder, they may see you as the threat, especially if you have a weapon and you've taken out another individual, you're standing nearby. The first thing they're going to think is that you are the imminent threat. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I teach this in my course, you have to be prepared, you know, you have to be prepared for the first responders to show up. And that's kind of a deliberate action. It's a deliberate process. If you've used deadly force, you have to expect that after you've assessed that there are no more threats, that the police are going to show up. And, you know, when police show up, they're, they're looking at everybody with a gun. They just got the call that, you know, shots are fired or there's been, you know, shots fired and they're looking for threats. You with a gun standing in the open or standing anywhere with a pistol or a rifle in your hand can be perceived as a threat. So you basically have to reduce your signature and start, getting to the point in which you could potentially put your gun away if you deemed it's, it's safe enough or holster your gun, put your hands in the air and be prepared for them to arrive. Uh, another, another technique is, is really getting out of the area uh, where, where the uh, engagement took place and finding cover and letting the, the police wash it out. And then after it's all safe and clear and they've cleared the area coming forward and saying, um, you know, your role in the event more than likely based on cameras today, it's been recorded or it's, it's, there's some evidence of the engagement. Um, so, so you having to come after the fact, after everything's safe, isn't the end of the day. I, I tell people in my classes that my biggest threat, you know, an SF guy going against an amateur isn't the potential, you know, active shooter. It's the police. It's the first responders. So, yeah, it's a deliberate process that we always have to be thinking about that. And that, that's an important part of the overall training in active shooter is what are you doing now after the active shooter scenario is over with? You have to be prepared to to receive the friendly forces or, or the police officers. Right. Absolutely. And again, law enforcement are trying to do their job when they're coming into the situation. Which individual was the active shooter? As you said, they know that they have a male suspect with a gun or a female or whatever the case may be and they, they see you, then you've got to be very understanding that they're coming in with pretty amped up, high you know stress level as well, as we all are, or anybody that's in that type of situation. So you know, you've got to lessen that friction as quickly as you can. And the other things I think as well is, you know, for individuals that are kind of moving through the situation as they start seeing police officers, is to kind of avoid those kind of quick movements or pointing or screaming or yelling or coming at the officers and stuff like that because again you know you want to you want to make sure that the stress level is maintained low even as an individual that may not initially be seen as a threat the intensity is pretty high at this point yeah i think stress is what 
really overall is what we're trying to address here. I mean, stress is why police officers have sometimes bad shootings, why active shooters do what they do, why, you know, people who are involved in countering active shooter situations do certain things that they do that might not be the right things. I would say, you know, I did the active shooter scenario this weekend where I made them recover a hostage or recover a friendly and told them how to deal with that. And I would say about 50% of the class shot at the hostage, meaning they came in, they perceived a threat, uh, which was just a person, didn't identify whether they were an imminent threat or immediate threat, and they threw around downrange. Now, they didn't necessarily hit the hostage, but they had this you know stress level so high that small decisions, the, the eye-hand coordination, small critical decisions that they had to make at the last second, they were making mistakes and errors. So yeah, when, when the police come into a scene, they're already jacked up on adrenaline and you want to do everything you can to deescalate and presenting yourself in any kind of way that might be deemed as a threat is just endangering your life unnecessarily. So we have off, we have observe, we have flee, we have fight, and we have diffusing the situation or at least making sure that when you do make yourself aware, once you once you see that the area is calm and the police have it under control or law enforcement have it under control, the steps that you take, and especially if you were the one that took out a active shooter or a number of those, what to do in those types of situations, is there anything else that an individual has to be kind of aware of in an active shooter situation? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of other considerations, and, and there's really there's too many to cover. But one of them that stands out to me is trauma, is medicine or, or medical trauma. So what do you do? What happens when you have this dangerous scenario, but it's like the Boston Marathon bombing where, you know, it, it's initiated with something that produces casualties. You know, the, the bomb itself, the shrapnel, gunshots, people are wounded. How do you address that? I would consider those type of situations the same way we, we address those type of scenarios in combat environments. Meaning, I am not going to go and move and play medic, or if I am a medic, start addressing people's wounds, no matter how critical they are, before I lock down the security of that scene or that area. A big mistake that's routinely made in active shooter scenarios for example, the Hollywood shooting where the two bank robbers were, were jacked up on drugs and they had AK-47s and they started taking casualties from the police. They start, they wounded like 19 police officers. The police officers started maneuvering under fire to their buddies. Now, that's heroic. That, that, there's no doubt about it. That's, that's really uh, heroic and that's something that is a time-sensitive decision that not a lot of people are put in that scenario. So you can't really judge it. But imagine you go to help somebody under fire and you get shot yourself or wounded yourself, which happened in that situation. And now you're just another casualty. And now you just decrease your chances of survival because you haven't addressed the threat. It's still an active hot zone. Yeah, it's an active it's an active war zone. And the first thing you have to do is address the threat. You have to deal with the shooter before you can start dealing with casualties. During the Boston Marathon bombing, the same exact thing happened where medics paramedics people who are in the military or medics started immediately treating those who were wounded well what if there was a secondary device what if it was a coordinated attack with an active shooter along with the the bomb which is a it's, it's a standard al-qaeda tactic um so it's it's not unheard of there would just be more casualties inflicted so the number one priority is dealing with the threat that presents itself and then addressing the trauma so in trauma that by itself, I talk about like a culmination of an active shooter scenario is basically a culmination of a whole bunch of specific hard skills and technical skills that you have to learn, like shooting a pistol, evasion, urban navigation, communications, and especially dealing with trauma, being a good medic. So that training in itself, we, we use uh, combat casualty care, which is a training course that we offer. But you have to be specifically trained in that to deal with with those kind of scenarios. So it's an overall element to the overall culmination, which is an active shooter. So there's a lot there's a lot to it, if you can tell already. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we've given a lot of information in terms of what to do in an active shooter situation. Obviously, there are classes and training that's available out there that individuals can attend and get further training on. 
So what I like to do is I always remind people that, you know, your family and your children and the people that you surround yourself with are why you're doing these, this training. So if you're learning it as an individual, you always have to remember that you have to pass on this information and this knowledge to your children and to your family. And they have to be prepared for these type scenarios as well. You can't just depend on the fact that you're going to command and control them. You're going to grab them and, and then drag them along. You want to always remember that, you know, whether it's a rehearsal, whether it's a talk through, whether it's, you know, at the dinner table and it's a conversation, you want to give your children and give your family as much information as you can that you learn to be prepared in these scenarios. I, I always tell the parents, keep it simple, stupid, that whole kiss uh, methodology and training for the military. Keep it very simple. Use pro words. That means something. You know, if, if, if we're talking about a house fire, you know, and, and you, you yell out black or gold and black and gold mean different link up points, it's going to assist and help those kids. And it's going to be fun for them to not overthink and complicate the situation where they just react and they're conditioned to react based on a word. So you say black and it means you're going to Mrs. Johnson's house, the front door, and that's where we're going to link up. You know, you say gold and we're going to the other neighbor's house to link up and involve your family because it's not an individual task. It's always uh, the individual task always lends itself to the collective task. And the collective task in this situation is your family, your friends, and potentially the society and the communities in which you live in. You know, that in a nutshell, that's kind of like our methodology and our training is, you know, you're, you're not just doing it for yourself. You have to spread the love. All right, so on September 3rd and September 24th, we have uh, two active shooter courses that are posted on our website. It's uh, philcraftsurvival.com. Um, as it gets closer, we'll be putting more more information on them. But it's a day course, day active shooter scenario where you'll be running and gunning with uh, simunitions and, and learning the processes in which we talked about. Um, also in September, we're going to do a home defense seminar, which is a free seminar that we have. All this is done in Modesto, California at our training facility at Spec Group, which is in downtown Modesto. So if you guys got any questions, you always can email me at info at philcraftsurvival.com. It's info at philcraftsurvival.com. I'm always available, so just let me know. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free, and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. It doesn't matter whether you are searching for your passion or purpose, finding your way through a military or civilian career, working on your fitness, or just about to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Get after it.